You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. Hey, my name is Ken Tizard, and I make music for a living. You might know Ken Tizard as the bassist for multi-gold and platinum-selling bands The Watchmen and Thornley. But he's also a singer-songwriter with eight critically acclaimed records and an intimate weekly online show called Whiskey Wednesdays. Ken recently released All Together Now, an album of reimagined covers featuring members of Lowest of the Low, Headstones, Headley, and The Watchmen. Here's my chat with Ken Tizard. Who are you and what do you make for a living? Uh, my name is Ken Tizard. Uh, I'm from St. John's, Newfoundland, and I make music, essentially. So, essentially, how did you get started making music? Um, I started playing music in um, in school. Um, started playing punk rock with some friends of mine. Um, the when I when I discovered punk rock back home in Newfoundland, I was you know about thirteen, and I was a bit of a displaced kid, you know, growing up amongst the preppies and the jocks and the the cool people and the rockers, and I didn't really fit in anywhere. And I found this group of people in downtown St. John's. It was a little skateboard punk rock scene. And uh, I loved the music and I was already skateboarding. So that became a thing. And then I started playing in, you know, punk bands. It was all just about, it was about sort of skateboarding and, and, and playing music for, you know, a big chunk of years. And I think that the, the DIY model of the uh, punk rock thing and growing up in Newfoundland where I was not alienated, that's the wrong word. Um, growing up in Newfoundland in the 60s and 70s, there, there wasn't a lot of outside world influence. Um, so like even growing up, there was uh, a, a bunch of us bands, it was four or five bands and we would play all year and then pool our money and then like fly in like SNFU or DOA or uh, Deja Voodoo, one of these bands. And, and we, you know, we, we'd just pool all resources to create a scene. And, and that stuck with me forever. And when I moved to Toronto, I just continued on that path. And then, uh, you know, that led me into the corporate world of music um, with making records for EMI and Universal MCA, 604, Roadrunner. Um, those uh, albums that I made were great. And I had a really good time doing that. And towards the end of it, you know, when I was with Thornley and I was kind of phasing out of that and the the record, you know, with the Watchmen and stuff too, we'd had issues where the record company was coming in and getting more into wanting to be more control of the art. Finally, after, you know, a, a long time of, of, of dealing with that, I just kind of went, eh, I'm going to just go do my own thing. And that was when I had to recreate again, you know, in my, um, in my thirties and forties to, to find out what it was I was doing. And I'm still, I'm still building on that, but I think a lot of the DIY model that I learned in the St. John's hardcore punk scene, even though I play folk music, um, primarily, um, you know, that, that stuff stuck, stuck with me and it's, it's still part of what I do today as a, uh, as a, as a model for life. You know, I get up, I create, and then I find ways to turn what I've created into food essentially <laughs> right <laughs> food and shelter nice yeah so taking me all the way back though so you were playing in punk, punk bands and then you said you made the move to toronto what what made you make a move to toronto i was 18 years old just turning 19 and um i had played with everybody in newfoundland that that was a band i'd been around the scene and i had just met with uh jody mitchell was down uh, he used to work for emi records and he was in newfoundland as part of the coca conference maybe in 88 somewhere around there maybe 87 and uh, I, I caught him in an elevator and gave him my, you know, hey, I'm a musician, I'm a bass player, I want to make music, what do I have to do? And he looked at me and he just said, you know, get off of this bloody rock and get up to Toronto. <laughs> and I kind of thought, no, I want to do it from back here. And and that summer, a lot of my friends moved to, to Toronto. And I remember getting a call from Mike Monroe. And he said, Ken, he said, there's so much work up here. 
He said, you can come up, you can get a job in the, in the morning and quit at lunchtime and have another job by two o'clock. He said like, you know, and we were teenagers, so like telemarketing was, you know, was right. the jobs we were looking for. We weren't looking for careers. And I said, Mike, I said, I don't even have the money to come up. I said, you know, I, I can't, I can hardly pay my rent. And, uh, and he called me later that night and he said, there's a flight leaving Newfoundland tomorrow at four up to Toronto. I bought you a seat on it. Come on up and you can stay with me. And, and that was what I did. I went up to Toronto. I had $60 in my pocket. I had my bass guitar with one change of clothes in the case. And that was it. And I came up and I hunkered down and I started doing all these telemarketing jobs to pay my rent while I played with every band on Queen Street. And I did that for years before I um, eventually sort of, you know, hooked up with the Watchmen and, and we got signed. And, you know, then the, then things took a different path for me. But. Well, and so how did you hook up with the Watchmen? Who was doing what at what time? So I was playing with a band called Growl. Um, and we had we were a Toronto um, folk rock band, for lack of a better title. Um, it was me and Mark and Peter Kesper, uh, the Kesper brothers, uh, and Tony, uh, Evans. Um, and we had landed a tour of Russia back in 1991. Uh, it was a six week tour. Um, and, it, and the day that we landed, if you look through the history books, there was a time back in the early nineties in Russia where, um, parliament was dissolved and there was kind of two governments and two police and two militaries all existing at the same time. And, and the, the kind of peak of it was when they bombed the White House in, um, in uh, Moscow. The day they bombed the White House was the day that we arrived. So we arrived in Russia um, from Newfoundland as young, young kids. We arrived with our translator to hear that, like, everything was shut down and, you know, the police on the streets were... It was, it was just insane. But we did this wonderful six-week tour, six tour of Russia, and I say wonderful in hindsight because it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. However, living through it was one of the hardest experiences. Um, anyways, we came back, and City TV had offered uh, us to play. You know, they had the bands on in the morning for breakfast television, so we did that. And my day job at the time was working as photo editor for Music Express magazine. And um, we shared office space with Jake Gold, who, ha who um, had the Tragically Hip and this brand new band called The Watchmen. And he saw me on TV that morning. And, and I was, you know, afterwards, I was in the coffee room making a coffee and Jake came in. He said, I didn't know you were a bass player. And I said, yeah. He said, I thought you were a photographer. I said, no, I said, I do. You know, this is what I do for my job, but um, I want to be a musician. And then he said, you know, well, I've got this new band from Winnipeg, The Watchmen. And I said, yeah, I said, I remember them. They, they had played at the Music Express Christmas party a few months before or the year before. I said, yeah, I remember them. And he said, uh, he said, yeah, he said, well, they're looking for a bass player and they're in Winnipeg. And I said, no fucking way. I'm not moving to Winnipeg. <laughs> I'm just getting settled into Toronto after leaving from Newfoundland. I'm not going to move to Winnipeg. And he said, uh, he said, well, let me fly you out and you can meet the guys. And that kind of started it. You know, my only rule, I flew out the following weekend and met them and, and got the gig. And I, the only rule I had was, you know, I wanted to stay in Toronto. I didn't want to move to Winnipeg. Um, and from Toronto, I could correspond back and forth. So that was how that all happened. You know, it was Jake Gold seeing me and just happened to be sharing a building with him, you know. So it was kind of right time, right place. And you guys stayed with him throughout much of the Watchmen's existence, we stayed right? with Jake. Jake, Jake was our manager forever. I mean, I, I still talk to Jake regularly. Uh, he doesn't manage the band anymore, but um, I, um, well, we're not really a band anymore. Um, I mean, Jake managed us until the band ended. You know, when I started Thornley, or well, it wasn't even called Thornley, when me and Ian and Seku decided to start a new band, uh, Seku was leaving Edwin, Ian was going to leave Big Wreck, and I'd leave The Watchmen. That was in 2001, I think. Um, and that was that was when we all parted ways. And 
I even had to part ways with Jake at the time because Ian had a different manager and it used to be Jake's partner and they had split and they had Jake and Bernie Breen had split. They had a really bad split and they were kind of adversaries. Jake was managing the Watchmen in the hip and, and Bernie had um, um, Bernie had big wreck. And then Bernie ended off the hip ended off going over to Bernie too. So there was all this animosity. And then I was playing with Ian all of a sudden and Bernie was like, sorry, you can't have Jake as your manager. I'm like, well, he's my manager. It's like, well, not for this band. And Jake is like, well, I manage you, Ken. So I, I manage the band. And it was this real weird time. And I just kind of went, I don't know what to do here. And the record company, you know, kind of stepped in and they, they had been working with Bernie and that was where it was going. So, you know, I had to split ways with Jake then too, but I've always liked Jake Gold. Um, he's been a, you know, people know him as a bulldog and a, and a, and a bit of a hard-ass businessman, but he's really the guy that you want on, on your side. Um, he did amazing things for the Watchmen and the hip, and he has the hip back again now. He's the one, uh, you know, who's currently managing their career and helping them put out the records and all that. So I got nothing but respect for Jake. You know, um, it's, there was lots of, uh, lots of years of great things that came from working with him. And so once you guys were firmly figured out in terms of management, in terms of where you were going. But how long were you with Thornley for? Are you, I mean, you're still playing with Thornley when they play, right? Thornley started, there was me and Ian and Seku. And then we had, I think two or three guitarists before Tavis came in. Um, Thornley started as a collaboration um, between me and Ian and Seku. Like Ian at that point, Ian at that point was dating and getting married to my sister. <laughs> okay. So, so Big Wreck and the Watchmen had done a big tour across Canada, uh, a big arena tour. And Ian met my sister in, at the Toronto show, at the last show. And they became, you know, they fell in love. And, and anyways, they were getting married and having kids and doing all that. So I was spending a lot of time with Ian. Uh, and it seemed natural. I was writing stuff. Ian was writing stuff. And it just kind of turned into that. So we worked organically for the better part of a year to get the songs on that first Thornley record together, uh, demoing them and, and shopping them and, you know, working on arrangements, you know, eating food and getting drunk and doing all that shit. <laughs> and we did that for a year. And then Ian changed management and his new manager came in and said, uh, this is Ian's show. You guys can leave if you want to, or if you want to stay, everything that you've been talking about for the last year is essentially gone. Uh, this is Ian's show and that's your choice. And I kind of went, well, I got a year invested into it. So I stayed with it. And I was hoping to stay longer than it would, but it, unfortunately, that pattern of, for lack of a better word, pack of, pattern of neglect towards the people in the camp uh, inevitably led me to, you know, I sat down with Ian and, and I remember it was in September and I said, listen, there's two things that you need to change. And this was six years, five years after we'd been touring uh, and, and, you know, the records were out and things were going really well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just said to Ian, I said, if I want to continue with this, but if I'm going to continue, there's two things that need to change and I won't say what they are. But I said, you know, I'll give you a month to kind of think about it and make some plans. And uh, a month later, almost to the day, um, he called me and Seku and said, you know, I heard what you guys said and uh, I'd rather get a new bass player and drummer than make those changes. And I said, well, those two things, if you can't, if you can't live without these two things that are, that I feel are destroying everything, um, then, uh, then I should be going too. So, you know, I get asked a lot, you know, who got fired and who left? I don't fucking know. You know, I said, I want this to change and I can't, I can't continue unless it does. And this person said, well, I can't make that change. So we all just kind of went, okay, well, it's over then. Uh, and then Ian continued along after that. 
there was a bunch of ugly legal stuff uh, with management and myself that I never thought that I'd end up getting into. And it, and me and Ian didn't speak for a few years after that, even though he was married to my sister, there was a, there was a lot of um, continuation of the behavior that had been happening and it didn't make for a nice parting. After that, you know, Ian kind of slowly worked his way back into my life. And then at that point, he changed the name back to Big Rec. Uh, and he was stuck for, he was still having a hard time finding a bass player a couple years later. Uh, he'd been through two or three. So he had these tours coming up that he needed help with. So he asked me and I said, sure. And I went back and I played, I don't know, I guess I did maybe another eight or 10 tours with Big Rec at that point. But again, I was like, Ian, this isn't Big Rec. Like, I'm not part of Big Rec. This is Dave Henning's gig. I'm not sure what, like, you know, you should, this, it, 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 nothing ever felt right after that. Um, so, you know, in, inevitably it got to the point where I just said, Ian, I, I, I can't do this. You need to find a band. You need to get your shit together. I'm not coming back. I'm not being the new Big Rec bass player. Um, you know, it's time for you to kind of lay your feet down and get stuff done. And um, and that's kind of where that was left. You know, um, the big the, the big Rec Thornley thing just kind of, disappeared out of my out of my wheelhouse and and i'm fine with that you know it's nice i'm very proud of those thornley that first thornley record especially i'm very proud of i think we did amazing things i think we had an amazing sound i think we we kind of took the world by storm too i mean we really did the, the amount of stuff that happened in the u.s and abroad was incredible um unfortunately the business of the music business uh, was um you know, I don't know how many times I, I, Ian said to me, Ken, it's nothing personal. This is just business. And I just looked at him and said, whenever you say that, that's your, just way, that's your way of justifying the fact that you're fucking me, <laughs> you know? And it, well, it's just business. I'm like, no, it's not business. You can make a decision. You know, it's, the business isn't ruling your life. And those were the type of arguments and stuff that we always had. And, and that's, that's where that one, you know, will I ever go back and play with Ian again? I, I, I won't. I won't go back into that camp again. I love Ian. He's, uh, he's... He's got a big part in my heart, um, and I love the music that we made. And I will never, ever forget the feelings of standing on stage with him and Seku. And, you know, like I said, we had, I think I went through nine or ten guitar players um, while, while I was with him. Um, but with him and Seku and me, the power that we had and the, the in-tuneness that we had with each other musically, um, that was unparalleled and, and, and unfound in anybody else. It's just been, it was an amazing experience. I would never... I would never talk badly of that uh, in any way, shape, or form. But the logistics of making it work just didn't didn't work out for me. The chemistry involved in making something really great is also usually just volatile enough, or just just bubbling below the surface at all times. That it, you know, it's always in danger of exploding. Absolutely, it's just yeah. the nature of of making something good is just teetering well, on I making something that's going to fall apart. Yeah, and I I think that's what happened. Like the year that me and Ian and Seiko worked together before the management came in and stuff, we were working collectively and everything was like, this is an equal partnership. You know, whenever we get the record out, whenever merch comes, this is all going to be equal. And I think that very first step of, you know, it was the first day that we started recording and the new management came in and, and they actually sat down with me and said, we have other bass players ready to fill your shoes. You can either take our offer or not. And I said, there's no offer. I've been working on this for a year. My offer's with Ian. And that was the first time Ian looked at me and said, it's just business, Ken. I don't even know. And I said, what do you mean you don't know? You're taking everything? And he said, that's what the business guys are telling me I have to do. And I went, this isn't what we just spent a year doing. And that was, that was the beginning of the end, you know, because it immediately put everybody into a box. And that, I mean, yeah, those few years touring on that first Thorny record, as great as they were, uh, man, there were more broken windows and broken mirrors and chairs <laughs> flying around the bus and, and fists like literally fist fighting amongst the band members on the bus just because 
it was such an uncomfortable and um, it was such a damaging environment. Uh, but we made an amazing, like those, when we were on stage, it was incredible. And that's what kept us going. And that's why I say when, when record companies started coming in, and even when he, I remember the first, the day that I told Ian those two things that I needed was the day that he played me a song. It was a Sunday. I showed up at my sister's house and Ian said, come down. I wrote something last night. I went down, I played, he played it for me. And I went, this is fucking amazing. I said, Ian, this is, this is the type of stuff we have to do. It had a little bit of dire straits in it, a little bit of Fleetwood Mac, a little bit of sound garden. Like it had all this great stuff. And Ian looked at me, he said, uh, nobody will ever hear this. And I said, why? He said, there's no money in a song like this. And I started to cry. I said, Ian, I said, this is one of the most beautiful songs you've played me in six months. And you're telling me you're not even going to like, let us consider it as a song. He said, this song, there's no money in this. And I, and that it was later that afternoon that I said, okay, we've got to make some changes. Um, but that, that kind of broke my heart that day that he played me such an amazing song and then made it very clear to me that it wasn't going to be heard because of the business that we were in. And it just kind of, it just made me sick, you know, from that point. I mean, once you guys went your different ways, you began a different journey. You began looking for something else, creating something else. I mean, what happened next in your musical evolution? Well, there was a period of, of floundering. Uh, I mean, the, the last year that I was on the Thornley tour bus, I spent most of my nights after the shows in the back lounge, uh, you know, smoking weed and listening to Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan and Nick Drake and all this stuff that I'd been listening to since I was a kid. And the front lounge would be, you know, reggae party, you know, just with all the strippers and all that stuff. Uh, lots of fun. Great. Not knocking it, but it wasn't really my scene. And that last year, I kind of knew that what I was doing with Thornley wasn't where I wanted to be, even though I was enjoying it and it was satisfying on so many levels. It wasn't where I wanted to be. And when the head finally broke, I kind of went, OK, so where do I want to be? And I thought the best way to, to, to explore that was to get an acoustic guitar. Um, rework some songs that I had written, uh, some Watchmen tunes, uh, some of my favorite songs, you know, like Nick Drake's and the Bob Dylan's and go out and start playing coffee shops. And I literally went from, you know, playing Hershey Park with Nickel with uh, opening up for Nickelback and Three Doors Down for like 50,000 people uh, to finishing that and then taking four months off and then playing in a coffee shop for six people <laughs> and realizing what the fuck have I done? And And everybody in my world said to me, can your, the term they used was career suicide. They said, for you to be leaving Thornley at this point, turning your back on 20 years of rock and roll to go play acoustic guitar like is, is career suicide. But I knew I needed to do it. Uh, my kids were growing up. I was still away from them way too much. Um, the, the Thornley camp brought nothing, uh, didn't bring much joy to my life outside of the time we were on stage. Um, the demands of the touring were too much for what I was getting out of it. Um, and I knew I just had to change. So I just kept pushing it. Uh, I kept writing new songs. Um, I made a, I made a six string bass, uh, singer songwriter album, um, which was, um, borderline ridiculous, but it did, you know, a, a year after putting that album out, I found myself on stage with the Toronto symphony orchestra backing me up, you know, like right. it, it caught the eyes of some great people and put me into a great new atmosphere. And then I continued down the road of country folk Americana. And I kind of found a niche, uh, which I refer to as narrative songwriting. Uh, people like Slade Cleves and Ron Hines. Bob Dylan does it a little bit. Tom Petty does it a little bit. Um, uh, Chris Christopherson does it quite well. These are songs that, you know, 
every line gives you an image uh, or a character trait or a timestamp or, you know, you listen to a, a five minute song and it's like reading a short story. Uh, there's no catchy choruses that, you know, you can sing along that happen in 15 seconds. It was a totally different thing for me. And I was, it was funny because I was still doing Watchmen shows and still doing the odd big rec show and then trying to, you know, take like Watchmen tunes on the acoustic guitar and trying to turn them into this narrative thing. And I'm like, I can't, it wasn't working. And I'm learning Watchmen tunes on the guitar. And I'm like, this seems stupid to be playing on an acoustic guitar. Like there's no, <laughs> there's no power, you know, singing one in a million for 40 seconds, you know, it sounds great on the radio, but like with an acoustic guitar, you just feel like an idiot. <laughs> so I started really, you know, I started reaching out to people like Valdi um, to, uh, to be able to open up for them and, and see more of their, what they were doing. And I, I ended off working with a guy named Ron Hines, who was one of my idols from back home. Um, he played with the wonderful Graham band when I was a child. And they were on TV. And when he was in his mid-60s and I was uh, in my mid-40s, he reached out to me to do a tour. And we went on tour as a duo and did uh, a bunch of large theaters together, sort of, you know, 800, 800 to 1,000 seat theaters, which is really nice. Mm -hmm. And he played acoustic guitar and I played bass and backed him up. And during the few years I worked with him, he taught me... He taught me the art of narrative storytelling uh, in a song, and he also taught me how to work with an audience. Uh, you know, there's time, like some of my favorite artists that I go to see now, they'll talk for six or eight minutes between songs. And I love that. But it's so different than, you know, Thornley come out, there's no talking. Yeah, less you know, the, talk, more rock. That was the, uh, yeah, the, the rules back the, in the day. The first, note, <laughs> the first note hits before the lights come on, and the lights go off before the last note hits, and there's nothing in between except a wall of noise and insanity. <laughs> and then all of a sudden just an acoustic guitar and people staring at you waiting for you to say something. It took me ages to start to cross that gap. Um, and when I did, I found myself on the other side working in the folk community quite strongly and playing shows like Merle Fest in the States where I, you know, I, I played for 18,000 people, just me and an acoustic guitar, um, jam in the trees, the Philadelphia folk festival, stuff like that. I still can't get on the folk festivals in Canada because they all think I'm a rock guy. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you the guy from Thornley? I'm like, yeah, we're a folk festival. I'm like, but oh, no, I got I know, a big but... beard now and I wear a big yeah, hat. Nah. They're still getting that. But America was pretty good and uh, I can work down there, which is nice. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a, it's, it's been a over a decade that I've been transitioning, so to speak. Um, and I really feel like, you know, at this point in time with everything that's happened in, in the world in my life, I feel like I'm in a good place, uh, you know. I have a nice home studio where I make records for myself and I produce records for other people. Um, I, uh, I tour with the Watchmen. You know, we do five or eight shows a year. Um, I make a record every year or two. This last record, this last year I made three. Um, so I keep putting stuff out and um, I have a, a weekly live stream that I love. Uh, that's now in its 15th month uh, and I haven't missed a Wednesday in 15 months. Um, I do that and that, that's, that's been a great way to connect with audiences around the world. Um, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's, I'm 52 years old. I've been playing music since I was 13. I had one job for two years working as a photo editor outside of that. I've never had another job. Um, I don't know how I'm surviving. Uh, I really don't. Uh, I mean, th this past weekend, uh, you know, I was doing my merch inventory and I got the new record out and I was going through all my old tour shirts and stuff. Just, you know, you consolidate every few years. I'm like, okay, I got six of this one left and 10 of this one left and three of this one left. And I got this. I thought, I'm going to have a lemonade stand this weekend. So I actually set up a lemonade stand, lemonade and records on the front of the street in front of my house. And I did it for, for two hours. 
And I sold lemonade and I had vodka in the cooler for the adults that came. <laughs> and I had all my shirts and, and, and hats and CDs and albums out. And, um, you know, in, in, I was there for two, I stood there for two hours in the sun. And at the end of it, I went in and I emptied my pockets and I had, you know, 750 bucks. And I went, all right. I just got a fucking lemonade stand, which I haven't <laughs> had since I was six. And I sold records. Like it's, it's crazy. That's it, your second it, job now. You've been a photo editor job. and you've had yeah. a lemonade stand. Both <laughs> so very successful runs. Of yeah. <laughs> and they were both good. So, yeah. So it's, it's, that's been, that's been kind of the story of my life. So, so much is just kind of try and make things happen and try and make them happen as best you can in order to do what I want to do, which is music. Well, and, and talk to me about music for a second on sort of a, a broader scale, because you could have stayed with Thornley. You could have uh, continued in the rock world. You felt like you wanted to go, but what was it about making things, creating stuff? What is that drive in you? You say you want to just keep making music, but you've been making music for 30 plus years, almost professionally for almost 30 years. Yep. You, you know, what keeps you going? What motivates you? I think at this point, like when I, Bob Dylan has been an artist that I've been with since as, as long as I can remember. He's the one artist that's been consistent. And what I love about his music is every album that he's put out and the, and the time, the years that have come out in my lifetime, like I can think back and think, oh, I was listening to Blood in the Tracks when this happened, or I was listening to this when this happened. And, and he's kind of documented his life and his life through stories and songs. And now that I'm 50, I'm looking back and I'm realizing the Thorny and Watchmen thing, because of, their, because of the commerciality of those, they will have a certain life. And both of those bands will go down in the, the, the story of Canadian music just because they had a life as commercial artists. And, and both bands were actually very talented and produced good music. As a solo artist, outside of that, uh, I mean, doing what I do, you will never have that type of recognition. It's, it's not a money game. Uh, it's a different thing. And I feel now at 52, when I look back through, I kind of feel like I need to keep just documenting as I go through. Um, it's, it's become so much a part of who I am and what I do. And it's not just the documenting of the music. It's the documenting of the story. Uh, my social media presence is kind of like my living, uh, my living story, if you will. Um, and, uh, and I, and there's so many different varieties of it. You know, I, I don't promote them all together, but you know, I've, I've got a blog, I've got a podcast, I've got, you know, the, there's Twitter, there's Instagram, all these different things and, it, and things go in different ways. But I, I think there's a part of me that wants to, you know, at the end of the day, when I'm no longer on this earth, for people to be able to look back and, and follow the story of Ken Tizard. And I, and I want it to be more than just a record or a song. I want it to be, you know, there's kind of the story of my life laid out for, uh, for, for people. Why I want to do that, I don't know. I mean, it's, it could just be a product of, you know, I've been doing it for a while. And it seems like I should keep doing it. Um, I don't particularly know the whys. It's just, it's what I love to do. I love to wake up every morning and, you know, and take care of my wife and do what I need to do with her, uh, take care of my kids and then play guitar and play some music. And if the evening comes and there's a place to play in front of people, then yeah, I do that. You know, it's just it's kind of what I love doing. What about your kids? Are, are, are they into music as well? Are they anybody going to, going to follow in dad's footsteps? Cause I know there's definitely some talent in singing. I, I know you've recruited them a little bit. Yeah, they sing with me quite regularly. I mean, they started by the campfire when we were kids. Um, and uh, when I first left Thornley, my wife was a teacher. And with the kids being in school, we decided that the best way for me to do summer tours is to buy a, an RV. So we bought an RV and I'd pick them up the last day of school and we'd go out to 
you know, uh, Vancouver and then down through California one summer and the next summer we'd go out to Newfoundland and down through Boston and up through New York. And we toured for seven years doing that. And during that time, my kids learned to sing because we do campfire stuff. And, um, and I mean, as you probably know, there's something about siblings singing together that they, they, they breathe the same. They think there's there's something that happens that, that is unmatched with non, with non uh, sibling singers. So they have that knowledge. Plus they can actually sing. Uh, and they enjoy doing it. So I've incorporated them, you know, like when I played the Philly Folk Fest, they got up and did a couple songs with me. Uh, they've been on stages with me across the world, and now they're starting to record with me, with me pretty regularly. And even the new record, uh, All Together Now, which just came out a couple weeks ago, um, they sing on a bunch of tracks uh, there as well. So they're they're very much into it. My youngest daughter, Cassidy, is in University at Queens for Engineering. Um, which is a, a, a massive, you know, brainiac project, project type thing. I don't understand what she's even doing there, but she's real smart, but she loves music, but she wants to be an engineer. Uh, my oldest daughter, Caitlin is actually just finished setting up her first recording studio in, she, she knocked down a room in the house to take over for the studio. And, uh, she's just built a little studio and she's going to make her first record now as well. She's, she wants to sort of follow this for a little bit. So amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great to have it in the family. Yeah. You could be the, uh, the modern day Von Trapps. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Just not, hopefully not being chased by Nazis, you know. Yes, exactly. You've always been somebody that uh, I know has always embraced technology, which is kind of hilarious that now you've rolled all the way back to you, a voice and, you know, an acoustic guitar. Yeah. But I know you love your your gear and your your technology and your your gadgets. Your social media you're using is basically your, uh, what the hell is the word I'm looking for? Archive. Archive. Yeah. Like you, you're, Archive, yeah, yeah you're, you use social media in a way that's a lot more active, I think, than a lot of other musicians and artists. It, you expose yourself, not literally, but figuratively on them. And you, 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 you share lots of parts of your life on it. Yeah. What other sort of things are you using? I mean, uh, you know, you've got a studio. What, what are you, what are you using these days? Well, I mean, the studio is, is, is pretty basic. Uh, I mean, it's just, you know, it's basically my old bedroom. You can kind of see around here. Right. Uh, you know, there's drums and guitar amps and lots of microphones and, you know, the computer. Um, the beautiful thing about it is, you know, with this day and age, like when I started doing the broadcast, I hooked into a company called Switcher. Um, and what Switcher allows you to use is any iOS device uh, can attach to it. So, you know, it's, it's really, it, the, the technology is fascinating right now. So with an iPad, like for my Whiskey Wednesdays, the iPad broadcasts out to Restream, which sends it to all the platforms. But I use Switcher there. So I take my phone and whoever else has a phone, there's usually six phones here. Right. And um, each of those phones becomes its own camera. And I just set them around the room. And then using Switcher, my daughter just changes from camera to camera as we're playing live. Like, so we basically have a TV studio in our house, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, but what, I mean, I don't work a job. Um, I, don't, I don't have hours. Uh, I don't know what day of the week it is, aside from I have to look at a calendar to, you know, <laughs> remind me that like things like this. I have to do this three o'clock on a certain day. Wednesday, um, I have my show. Make sure I'm yeah, there. Yeah, there's certain things like that. But for the most of it, my life it revolves around kind of just wandering through the day. Um, and what I've done with my social media, like, again, back with the Thornley thing, like, I got to see some of the some of the ugly side of, of the record companies that I never wanted to be a part of, you know, at one point I was fired from the band early on because somebody found out how old I was and, 
in again with the it's just business, Ken. Sorry, but you can't be the bass player anymore because you're too old. And I went, What do you mean? They went, They don't want anybody above 24. And I went, What the Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> so um, I got kicked out of the band for a month. And then a month later, Ian called me back and said, I- I've auditioned like a dozen bass players. I need you to be back in the band. But the condition is we're going to re age you for the bio. And I'm like, What? And it's like, Yeah, so in the bios, you'll, your birth date will be changed. I said, okay. And then I, of course, I started, you know, people would say, so Ken, you're 26 now. I'm like, no, no, I'm 32. The BIOS is 26. Yeah, the BIOS fucking lies. <laughs> so I started getting in trouble for that stuff. And, and, the, and the entire, all of the mystique of rock and roll that started to come in that I always hated. Um, when I decided to go solo, that was one of the first things that I said to myself is, backstage is a place where I go if I need to. But after and before the shows, I want to meet the people that are there to see me. I want to talk to them. I want to put off a show and feel like I'm connecting with an audience. And that connection with the with the development of social media the way it has, I really started just being honest about stuff. Um, and I mean, I'm not saying honest in that, you know, I'm going to slam it. I've had lots of people say, you know, who's the worst musician you've ever worked with and all this shit. I'm not going to get into that because that type of honesty doesn't do anybody any good. Yeah, we all know it's me. Yeah, <laughs> It was me. I was terrible. That's why I stopped. (laughs) Yes, that the B side down on John. Yeah, you know, you found me. You said, you know, you're good enough to to put on on a bill, and then you're like, oh, I made a mistake. Get the fuck off my stage. (laughs) And thank you for that. Yes, well, you're in a better place for it, believe me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, so that sort of developed into this this strangely transparent thing that I have online. you know, I mean, like I said, even this weekend with the with the 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 fucking lemonade stand. I mean, I, I don't know how many other Canadian musicians that have you know had top ten singles are are posting on Facebook their home address and phone number to drop by. Um, I don't really care. You know, I mean, sometimes that attracts somebody who might be a little bit mentally imbalanced, uh, and we all have those people around. But still, you smile and you talk to them and you be friendly. I mean, they're still people. It's. it's there are people that are just, you know, even if they're if they if there's not an issue, there are people that are just generally fucking annoying. <laughs> um, but still, they're, you know, they're, they're there and they want to be a part of it. So, you know, I always feel like there's there's never a reason to not include people. And the smoke and mirrors of rock and roll, I loved it for years. I mean, I loved hearing the rumors about Led Zeppelin, you know, in the seventies and eighties when I was growing up, and the rumors about the Smiths and and all of these artists that you had no idea what was happening with. It was just the rumor mill or what you could read out of a magazine. Those days are done. And any sort of artistic expression that's still being packaged that way, I find has very little value for me. Uh, there's nothing of interest there for me. And that could be my age. It could be my experiences. I'm not saying it's bad or or good. I'm just saying for me, it has little interest. And the stuff that I find I'm more engaged with is uh, very authentic and honest. And and that's, I can't even say I'm trying to provide that because it's it, there's no trying to it. You know, I mean, I wake up some days and I sit down and I, I just start typing and, you know, then my wife says, you know, you just told everybody about something very personal and yeah, sorry. <laughs> you know, and, and she's cool with it too. Like, my wife is very sick. She has MS um, and she's had it for seven years. Uh, a few years back, she had a stem cell bone marrow transplant that has left her pretty much um, in bed. She's been in bed now for three years. Um, I have to, um, I'm, I'm her primary caregiver. So every time she needs a glass of water or brush her teeth or anything else she needs, I have to be there to help her. Um, so touring has become very hard. 
um, getting away. I mean, I don't even go out and buy groceries. We have somebody who does that for us. I don't leave the house because she needs me. She can't, you know, she can't move. Um, when the watchmen have a show or if there's a festival that I need to go do, it takes a lot of planning on my part to get in nursing and get family here to help and stuff. Um, so over all of this, it's, it's, I find myself constantly adjusting to, uh, whatever new and whatever is, um, whatever has to happen to make my life continue. Um, and I think that, you know, the smoke and mirrors that a lot of, uh, a lot of rock acts are framed in that doesn't work for me in my life. Even if I wanted to, it's like, I can't do that because people know, people have to know why I'm unavailable now. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was, uh, and once I started sharing stuff, especially about my wife, I discussed it with her. I said, you know, I said, I'm going to start telling people, because there was a lot of people saying, why aren't you doing this anymore? And why aren't you doing that? And I I felt a need to tell them. Uh, and my wife said, that is your job. She said, you, you, you do it on stage. You talk about your depression and your OCD. You talk about your medication. And she said, you see how people react to that after when they come up and give you a hug because you're talking about it. She said, that is who you are. She said, you need to embrace that more. And, and that will become part of what you're doing. And without, without any effort, uh, I mean, there's a lot of work involved, but without any effort, um, that's kind of what's become my life is just I share, uh, you know, I share my music, I share my life. I share, you know, when I set up, when I set up the studio and started live streaming, there was another artist who'd been doing it for about a year prior to me and had a really nice setup. And when COVID hit and everybody was trying to figure out how to live stream, a lot of people had reached out to him and he posted a video and he said, you know, I've been doing this for a year and I went through a lot of trial and error and I spent thousands of dollars finding the right thing. And everybody's emailing me now saying, how do you do it? I'm not telling any. You got to go do it yourself the same way I did. And I kind of saw, saw that video and I went, fuck that. And that night I went on and I said, everybody, here's what I'm using. And I walked through from the microphone to the interface to the thing that I used to get to the iPad and the iRig. And I explained everything. And the, that is the way that I feel. It's like, whatever I'm doing, if somebody's like, how did you do that? Well, absolutely. Here's how you do it. If they do it, that's going to empower them. And that's fantastic. And uh, if they do it better than me, fine. I'm confident with what I'm doing. You know, uh, I'm not, I'm not trying to beat anybody to the punch. Well, I think a lot of that stuff goes hand in hand with the idea that you have embraced this storytelling music. So you, yes. you've, you're, you're not just telling stories now when you're performing, you're telling them between your songs, you're telling them when you're off stage, you're telling them when you wake up in the morning and grab a cup of coffee. It's, it's, it, you're effectively an open book and yeah. I mean, as you're saying, of course, there's certain things that you edit out. There's certain things we all edit out of our books. But Absolutely. at the same time, you know, if you, you, you found that the more you've let people in, the better the response, as opposed to kind of covering things up, faking your age, pretending like there's no drama going on and yep. sort of speaking around stuff, uh, as opposed to sort of being more direct and more open about it, because that's a hell of a lot more relatable. Let's, let's be fair. Well, it's where I want to be. It's where I want to be and it's where the people around me, you know, the people that I have close to me, it's the way that I want them to be too. Um, and like I said, at this point in my life, and it could be, you know, passing the 50 year gap is a big thing. And it could be at 50, I just kind of look back and I kind of go, I don't want to do this, this and this anymore because those, uh, those weren't actually fun and they didn't actually bring me much positivity. And some of these things made great money, but the money's not worth it, you know? And that's, that's the other thing that I'm, I have a very weird relationship with money. I mean, I, I didn't grow up with any, and I've never really had any. 
Um, I know people think that, you know, musicians who, who make records for labels have a lot of money. <laughs> the reality is if, I'd been, if I started a job at McDonald's when I was 20 and I still had it now, I would probably have made equal money. Um, but, uh, I didn't, and I had a lot more fun than working at McDonald's. So that's, that's what it's about for me. Um, and you know, I, I know that this, this, this podcast, a lot of it has to do with, you know, uh, how do you make things and then how do you make a living making things? And I've always said the hardest thing to do, you know, I can write songs, I can sit down and I can write a song. I can sit down and I can write another song. I, I, I write all the time, but if I'm broke, and say a bill comes in, uh, the roof needs to be repaired. And I'm like $12,000 down. I got to put it on my visa. I'm like, okay, that's 12 grand on the visa. I got to find a way to pay this down because the interest is fucking ridiculous. And then I sit down with a blank piece of paper and a pencil and my guitar. And I say, okay, I got to make some money. Not a fucking word will come out. <laughs> Nothing. You know, I, I can take a blank paper and a pencil and a guitar and I can turn it into a song. But if my intention is to turn it into money, nothing comes out. It's the weirdest thing. And even with when I started doing the live stream last year, I had a lot of people saying, why aren't you charging for this? You know, why aren't you charging? I said, well, A, everybody's locked down. We're all in a hard place. This is an hour for everybody to escape. I'm going to tell some songs, play some stories, take requests, whatever. Um, it's very low, low key. And about six months into it, people said, okay, can you at least set up a, a PayPal link for donations? You know, I've, I've watched you 20 times now and I'd like to send you a few bucks. Okay, fine. That sounds great. Uh, and I set that up. And even, I mean, that PayPal link gets put on the show every week. And I even say it's there. It's not necessary. It's appreciated, but you know, don't feel any response. I've made more money through that method than if I had tried to do a ticketed event. I right. um, I've had people, I mean, you know, there are some people who watch every week and they send me $5. There are other people who watch once every three months and they send me 200. Um, and there's a few people that have watched it a couple times and said, I've been following your music for so long. You know, I'm signing up, for, I'm signing up for a year, you know, here's 50 bucks a month for the next year. It'll come out on the first of every month. These things to me are, then this has just been the last year this has been happening. Cause I've been doing the online thing. It is overwhelming. Um, and it, it also proves to me that there's a value to what I'm doing and people respect that. And they're going to show it in the form of helping me you know, put food on the table. Right. And I think that there's more of that down the road. And I think that this, this year of lockdown has taught people, um, I think the, the barter system and shopping locally, supporting locally, supporting stuff you really love that is authentic, um, you know, spending a little bit more on some shoes that might sort of fit and be more comfortable than something that's just totally fashionable and was, you know, churned out of some plant in China. I think that all of, I think there's there's going to be an awakening to all that, and I think that's a re, that's one of the silver linings of COVID. I know for me it has been. Um, you know, I'm I'm just trying to uh, find ways to continue doing what I'm doing, and uh, without getting into the, you know, the, the five year business plan that so many people work on. Um, I have been there, and I've done that. I, I'm not doing it anymore. Um, I don't have a business plan. I mean, my my business plan basically is to wake up in the morning do what I need to do throughout the day. And but on, to the point where when I lie in bed at night, I go, yeah, I think I got everything done. I mean, that is as far as my business plan goes. <laughs> um, for whatever reason, it might be the 20 years of hard work that I put in with the Watchman and Thornley that gave me enough of a presence to be able to maintain this. Um, I, I really don't know. I, I don't know what other people are doing. I don't know when people are having their broadcasts, if they have 
20,000 people watching to my, you know, 80 or a hundred. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I also don't really care. You know, <laughs> it's kind of, uh, life has gotten very insular for me. Um, I, I'm also, I started living in an isolation bubble a year before everybody else because of my wife. So I'm, I'm two years of isolation. I know everybody's just, just rounding out their first. I'm, I'm rounding out. I'm, I'm actually halfway through my third. Um, somebody does our grocery shopping for us. Somebody gets our mail and, and does our, my liquor store runs. So I don't need to leave the house um, because we've been so afraid of infection with my wife. Right. So it's been, it's been interesting, but somehow at the end, I mean, I did speak to my accountant today because tax, tax day is today, of course. And, and he was rounding everything out. He said, man, he said, that's one of the most dismal years you've had in a long time. I said, yeah, I said, it is. He said, but I said, but look at the outgoing expenses. I said, look at my flights and hotels and gas. We're, that's all at zero. He said, yeah. He said, strangely enough, you're about, you're about on par, even though it's been a horrible <laughs> year. Said, that's not bad. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of curious about the, um, the nature of inspiration for me. And I think for a lot of folks, at least we get it in our head that, uh, you know, that we need to go out and experience a lot of stuff in order to find inspiration. You've been at home for two and a half years, give or take. You've had responsibilities that, you know, I wouldn't wish on anybody um, mm-hmm. over that time. Yet you're creating more music than you ever have before and, and, and better music. And then there's more honest music, more authentic music than you ever have. And I'm just curious, how are you finding inspiration when your, your entire day is spent between, you know, three, four, five different rooms and, you know, selling uh, uh, selling your merch and your, uh, <laughs> on the lemonade, <laughs> your stand. lemonade stand outside. Where does it come from? In all honesty, my, my, my life has been really derailed since my wife got sick. Um, you know, the last five years have been incredibly tough. Um, the last album of fully original material I put out was no dark, no light. And I wrote that when I was on tour with Ron and I was being heavily influenced by Ron and, uh, and other people. And I love that record. I think it's a really strong record. After that, once my wife was diagnosed with MS, there was a year of terror and therapy, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, when the doctor told us that she had MS, my immediate vision was uh, life in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Um, and that scared me. So there was a year of figuring out what we, what we were going to be coming up against. Um, and the information over that year was even more terrifying as, she, as her, her health degraded. Um, and I didn't get much writing that I wrote a lot that year, but it was all songs about how much I hated my wife being sick. So I shelved those away because that's not, that's not, not for public for com- consumption, so to speak. And then Ron died. Um, and I spent the better part of a year doing a tribute record for Ron, which was a good dog is lost. And part of that for me was also immersing myself in Ron's skin uh, as him being one of my favorite son, closest songwriters I wanted to immerse myself into the point where I could play the songs exactly like he did on the guitar and the vocal inflections and then forgot it and then learned how to play it the way that I would play it. And that process took about a year. And that was a process of interpretation, just which is a creative experience for me. And then I made that record and that record came out in December and my wife was actually just getting a little bit better at that time. She was walking again and everything was good. And then she had another attack, which put her back into bed. And that was the one that led to the stem cell bone marrow transplant. So the Ron record came out. Then I had to move to Ottawa for a year with my wife while we had the transplant. And while I was there, I was having a hard time writing as well. Um, and I, about six months into our stay there, there was a nice routine because she was uh, 
quite tired at night where um, I could leave the hospital at six or seven and go to the apartment that we had rented for the year. And I had an empty apartment myself and I had a small studio set up. So I wrote a record that year, um, which I've retitled a few times. Um, and then we came home and then COVID hit. So when COVID hit, I couldn't be with the band to put this record out. Um, so I decided to follow along with being inspired by others. And that was where last year I came up with the idea to do All Together Now. Uh, so I chose 13 songs and I put a Facebook post out saying, is anybody interested in recording some songs with me from home? This will be a little 21-day experiment to see what we can do. <laughs> and the 21-day experiment turned into a year-long process with um, 45 musicians uh, all across North America, um, all playing remotely. Nobody saw anybody. And, and that took a full year. And that record came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, and it's being met with amazing response, which is great. But now I have this other record in my back pocket, uh, which I'm going to start recording soon. So inspiration for songwriting comes in many ways, but the songs don't all, they're not all, you're not always writing songs for something. You know, writing for me, the act of writing and the act of inspiration is kind of like having a toolbox with 35 tools in it. And you don't have a job right now and you're waiting for a job. Do you just look at the toolbox or do you take every tool out every day and work with it for five minutes? Then if you get a job, you're, you're ready. And that's kind of how I see inspiration. I get up every day. I play a little bit. Sometimes it's a piece of crap. Most times it's a piece of crap. But then when I do have a moment of inspiration, uh, and I mean some of the, like those lightning moments where a song arrives, I'm prepared for it and I can capture it properly. Um, so creativity and inspiration are kind of two separate things, but they're also very much the same thing. It's, 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 a, it's, a, strange, it's a strange balance. Um, you need to create all the time. You know, to use a mining, uh, uh, you know, uh, metaphor, I mean, you know, you can, look at the, you can look at a hill and there's a diamond in it. I mean, how much dirt do you need to move to get to that diamond? I mean, that, that, that is kind of what songwriting is. So even though I'm inspired in writing songs all the time, I might only get four or five songs a year that I actually think are, are worthy of recording. Uh, the last few years have been great for me um, in immersing myself in the skin of others to do that. And I'm really looking forward. I, I mean, this, this next record that I'm working on, I mean, when I vision it in my head, I've got elements of the Pixies, um, Husker Du, George Jones, Ron Hines, and then some sort of folkier stuff over here. It's, it's going to be a very eclectic record. Um, but I think, again, a lot of that comes from what I've done the last few years of, of writing quietly in the corner while absorbing myself in other people's music. It's been a, it's been a great learning experience and a really nice way to, to stay active in the brain. So what kind of advice might you give somebody who's just starting out who might want to get into the music biz or just music and not so much biz? Well, if you're going to get in the music business, I would suggest uh, looking at our friends like the cobblers. You know, there's, there's not many men or women sitting at home in their house uh, with shoe molds beating leather into shoe shapes anymore. <laughs> um, the reason for that is you can go to Payless and buy your sneakers for $12. <laughs> um, as you devalue um, a product, it becomes harder and harder to even talk about a marketplace. Uh, people ask, you know, about the, the music of business nowadays. There, there is no music of business. The music business is dead. Um, the music business is more than ever uh, owned by a few major corporations that are pumping out, you know, the Walmarts of, and, the, and the McDonald's of music. And that's fine because that is what a lot of the mass consumption are looking for. Mm -hmm. 
the business of music otherwise is very much a, a labor of love and a you have what you have to do now as an artist is not just create the art, but you also have to use that artistic creativity to create ways to generate income. Um, you know, yes, yeah, Spotify, you know, you need a million, you need a million plays for two thousand dollars. But you also need 200,000 plays of five songs for $2,000. Uh, you can break that down further into, into smaller numbers. Um, you, can, you can monetize simple things. You can do special events. You can reduce your expenses. You know, I mean, th- there's, a, there's a bar in Sarnia that I used to play at all the time, you know, and, and they played pretty well. Uh, but then I think about it now. It's like put four guys in a van with gear, drive four hours to Sarnia. Yeah, there's a meal and hotel included, and the pay is not bad. But it's two full days work for five or six people for not really a lot at the end of it. Mm-hmm. So getting into the music business. Um, if you love music as passionately, if you love music passionately enough that a career will evolve for you, it's going to happen. Uh, if you want to get into music, because you think it's going to be cool or you think it's going to make you famous or any of those things. That's a good possibility too. Cause that means that you're willing to sacrifice all artistic things to be popular. Uh, and that's the type of stuff that people are looking for. Uh, they're not looking for bands who are set in their ways. They're looking for somebody who can sing and has a look and has an attitude that they can then package and market around it. Um, if that's what you're looking to get into, great. What I've been telling students uh, maybe the last 20 years, I've done a lot of high school visits, uh, you know, you go in for talk about career day and stuff. And I go in and talk to kids about that. And what I tell them is that music is a beautiful gift. Uh, you can play music and you can have music in your life as much or little as you want. And if you enjoy it, that does not mean it needs to be your career. You can get a job doing whatever it is, you know, that doesn't make you leave home and doesn't make you travel the world. And you can make a living and get a good line of credit and buy a house and a car like most of the people in the world uh, and still play music. And you can make music. You can make your own records. You can do all that. It's all there if you want to do it. Um, And that's a wonderful thing, too. But if you're getting into music as a career, it's a it's a really bad choice. <laughs> it's a really bad choice. You have to accept the fact that you probably won't own a house. Uh, you probably will never buy a new car. You will probably always be buying used beaters from friends. Um, you will you will not eat at the restaurants that some of your other friends eat at. Uh, you will not have some of the clothes that your friends have, and you will not be able to shop. They would do. However, the lifestyle that you will gain from immersing yourself in music completely you could not buy if you were a millionaire. So, I mean, I don't quite know if that answers the question, but for me, it kind of circles all the options. You know, it's, it, it, it depends what you want out of life. I love making music. I mean, most days, most days go by. And at the end of the day, I look back and I think I did this, this, and this today. And then I think, did I make any money today? And I go, no, I didn't make a dime today. I did not make <laughs> a physical penny today, but tomorrow I might. You know, it's, it's, I've, I've grown accustomed to that in my thirties. I fought with that a lot, you know, having young kids, the mortgage was high. My wife was working. Um, I was, I was constantly beating myself up for not making enough money, um, and not being able to provide for my family and not be able to do the things, you know, my other friends were going on vacations and they were buying cars and stuff. And I was just like, I need to come to terms with the fact that is who I am. And I have, and, uh, 
and there's a great piece that comes with that too. So there's a lot you've got to ask yourself if you're going to get into the music business. Well, Ken, where can people find out more about you and your music? Well, the website, kentizzard.com, has everything. Um, there's a couple of new videos from the new album out. Um, the uh, you know, Twitter, um, Spotify, iTunes, Facebook, uh, Instagram, I'm on all of it. Uh, every Wednesday is the Whiskey Wednesday broadcast. That's a lot of fun. It's at 8 o'clock Eastern. Uh, you can catch it on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. Um, it's me. I usually start pretty buzzed and I can continue getting buzzed. Uh, it's a really low key thing when COVID restrictions aren't in place. I can have the full band here, but otherwise it's just me. And, um, that's a lot of fun. Um, and it's a free thing. Uh, it's a great way to escape for an hour. I don't talk about COVID and I don't talk about politics. Um, I'll talk about everything else. Um, and it's just a chance to escape from the world for an hour. So that's a lot of fun too. Um, and through any of those things, if you want to reach out to me, it, it all comes to me. There's, there's no intermediary. There's nobody else. Uh, it's all me. So uh, if you've got questions or if you're looking for something or you want to say something, just reach out and say it. That's, that's kind of the way that all works. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing how you make a living. It's been amazing, Robbie. Thank you. Subscribe to Making a Living Show on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more on the show, visit makingalivingshow.com and follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.